This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane. And it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. Four years ago this month, Notre Dame de Paris, the 12th century cathedral in the heart of Paris, caught on fire. The city was smothered in smoke for days, and hearts around the world were broken. Notre Dame is a gem of Gothic architecture, an incomparable beauty in the center of the city, a site for pilgrimage and tourism. Before the blaze, more than 12 million people visited each year. That's an average of 30,000 people a day. And during peak season, it was 50,000. Notre Dame has inspired artists and authors for centuries. It is the central character in Victor Hugo's 19th century novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it famously rang its nine glorious bells on August 24, 1944, announcing the liberation of Paris from German occupation at the end of World War II. It is also kilometer zero. All the distances from Paris to other cities in France are measured from Notre Dame. As the cathedral smoldered, the city of Paris pledged to rebuild it as it was. But the mayor had also set forth a plan to make Paris the greenest city in Europe by 2030, and realized that redoing the landscape around Notre Dame in a much more ecological manner could help Paris reach that goal. In September 2021, the city launched a pro-environment design competition for the site. And last summer, the jury selected a team led by our guest today, the award-winning Belgian landscape architect, Bas Smets. Since Bas opened his firm in 2007, he has specialized in taking hyper-urban, often desolate sites and turning them into eco-friendly oases. For Notre Dame, he and his colleagues will use the same approach for the surrounding landscape, the Parvis, as the West Side Plaza is known, and the gardens to the east. Their proposal will turn the Ile de la Cité, the island in the Seine where Notre Dame sits, into a sustainable microclimate. Bas is here on The Green Dream today to explain to us how they will do it. Bas Smets, welcome to The Green Dream. So you were at Notre Dame today, here in Paris, on a beautiful sunny spring day. What did you see? How's it coming along? Many people. It's, it's amazing that even though um, there is the, the fence around Notre Dame, the works are, are underway, there's still so many people watching. They have built kind of a podium, have a better view of Notre Dame, and it's full of people. And it's really yeah, heartwarming to see how people care so much, even if they don't have access, even if they hardly can walk around the Notre Dame because of the construction site, that still everybody wants to come have a look and see what's going on. Plus, it's Holy Week, so there's even extra interest in pilgrimages and tourists in town. And did you put on a hard hat and go in to check out the work inside? 
No, today I specifically want to look at the trees on the parvis, on the site. We go in quite often with the hard hat, not only the hard hat, also taking off all our clothes, putting on the special coveralls and taking a shower when we come back. I mean, there's a whole procedure before you can go into the cathedral because of the lead that melts down. Lead. This time it was an easier walk around the cathedral. So that's part of the construction is the lead cleanup, I imagine. Yes, and it complicates all the works because everybody has to go through this procedure, which of course takes time. But what have you seen inside? How is it looking? How is it coming along inside? The first thing you see is how big it is. Because of course, we've all been there, but you see everything at once. And now it's compartimented for the renovation works. So you see plastic everywhere, so they can really work zone by zone. And suddenly you understand that they're doing the renovation centimeter by centimeter, so you understand the, the enormity of the work. I mean, clean all the walls, all the tainted glass, all the ceilings. It's just such a work. But I've had a glimpse at one or two of the chapels that are already done, and it's amazing. The colors you see, it'll be an enormous surprise for many people to see these colors inside the cathedral. Wonderful. So tell us, how did you get this project to redo the Palvi, which is sort of like the front esplanade, and the gardens around Notre Dame. The city had a contest and you applied for it, correct? It was an international competition. And like all competitions in Europe, it's open to anybody applying. So I think they had about 100 candidacies from all over the world. And then four teams were selected by the city and the jury to compete. We had 10 months of dialogue competitive, as it's called, competitive dialogue, where we would meet the jury once halfway, where we'd meet the city, where we would have time to really develop the project for a final presentation that happened in June of last year, and out of which we were chosen as the winners. And, and if I say we, it's my office as the team leader of eight offices. So we have architects, we have engineers, we have lighting designers, we have structural engineers, environmental engineers, and also people specialized in security. So it's really a big team whom we want to compete. Right, different firms all teamed up together. Yes. Fantastic. And you're the captain of the ship. We're the team leader, which is also interesting that we as a landscape architect uh, are doing this. The emphasis is really on rethinking les abords, as they call it, the, all the surroundings. There's not a good word in English for that. All the surroundings, so as you said, the plaza in front, but also the street next to it, also the whole waterfront, the connection with the Seine, and then the squares behind the cathedral. But then the architects were teamed up with Grau and GA. They're in charge of transforming the former parking garage into a visitor center. So that's also an important part of it. Into a visitor center, right. And we'll get into all the different things you're going to do. But first, in your proposal and to do your homework and to really understand the cathedral, you reread Victor Hugo's novel, Notre Dame de Paris, didn't you? I did. And, and I also rewatched uh, Walt Disney's uh, Notre Dame. No, I watched about every movie on Notre Dame, and there's many of them. And it really helped to understand the imaginary of Notre Dame. Victor Hugo, of course, helped to also bring you back in the Middle Ages. His novel was placed in the 15th century. And it was really uh, very inspiring to see how that monument that has been there for 800 years has had such an impact on humanity. It speaks so much to our imagination because there, there's the movies and the books, but then also we looked at art and there's so many artists that have painted it, that have photographed it. It really lives in the imagination. And I thought that was so interesting to take that with us and to imagine a project that allows that and even multiplies the views, a detail here, a way of experiencing Notre Dame as almost a sculpture around which you're invited to walk. So it was really all these views, some painted the back of the church, the others front, the side. So we thought, how can the landscape project and the architectural project 
create new views on Notre Dame. That was really an important element of our design. But you've also had to take in climate change as part of the design because the city's getting hotter, as we know. My gosh, we had a heat wave last summer for five weeks. And I remember you saying that in 2050, Paris will have the same climate that Seville has today. So what you do with your landscape projects is you try to create microclimates. And that works with Paris because Notre Dame sits right smack in the center of the city, doesn't it? What's really special is that Notre Dame is the lowest point of the city. Many times the church or the cathedral is at the highest point of the city. Like Sacré-Cœur. Like Sacré-Cœur. Here it's right on the island at the lowest point of the city where the Romans had built the city 2,000 years ago. So I thought it's interesting to understand this positioning close to the people, a kind of very human building and a human approach, not this kind of castle on top of the hill. So our idea was how can we create this walk and discovery around it and then rethink all the landscape and public spaces as a microclimate, as a way of augmenting the outdoor comfort. For example, we looked at the winds, the wind that come with the Seine, of course, are refreshing, so you don't want to block these. The wind that are in the Rue du Cloître Notre-Dame, which is uh, north of the cathedral, they're not so nice. Because the wind comes down the Seine from exactly. the west, from the Atlantic. And so that wind you want on the Parvis, while you want to block it in the street where people are queuing up to go into the towers. We want to have more trees, because trees, through evapotranspiration, create a cooling effect. We wanted to have less hardscape, more softscape. So all these elements we took into account to really study the temperature. Now it's very hardscape. There's a lot of granite and a lot of concrete and exactly, a lot of mechanics. Exactly. And now people are queuing for three hours in heat before going into the cathedral. So we looked at a way of having them stand in line in the shade of the trees. So really looking at the use of the space from a climatic point of view, taking into account that in 2050, indeed, we will have more days of heat waves. We have to make the city ready for this changing climate. And then also there will be less water because there'll be less rain. I mean, already we're experiencing drought in the south of France. It's so dry right now. And this is normally the rainy season when we are able to fill up the aquifers and trees are dying from the lack of water. So your plantings will be more Mediterranean in style, right? Yes, we're looking at which trees are drought resistant, can take up more temperature. That's one thing we do. The other thing we do is we create artificial aquifers. We rethink the soil as a way to keep the rainwater on site. There will not be less rain on a yearly basis, but it will be more in a shorter time. That's what we had last year in France, a drought season and then too much rain. What Al Gore calls rain bombs. Yes, and that rain we have to keep. And if you think of it, the city is the perfect way of storing rainwater because everything is waterproof. The roofs are waterproof, the plazas are waterproof, the streets are waterproof. So what we do now is we use that waterproofing to evacuate the water as soon as possible, as fast as possible, and we create flooding on the lower side. While well, we should keep all the water in the city and have trees and vegetation benefit from that water, we're really rethinking the soil composition to make these artificial aquifers in which we store rainwater, which roots tap into later when they need it. And that's one way of making the city resilient and making sure that trees will survive the coming droughts that will happen in the coming years. And you're also taking the old parking lot and turning it into a citern, right? For rainwater. So all the rainwater that falls on the clouds are in front of the cathedral, which is hardscape will be stored in the old parking lot and we will be able to reactivate it by the use of a thin layer of water that will flow down on the plaza towards the cathedral and that will create an evaporative cooling, meaning that the air will cool through the evaporation of the right. water. Just like after a summer rain when you go outside, it's the air that's cooled because of this chemical reaction of evaporation. So that will be activated 
in summer based on the needs and the technology. So it'll be almost like there'll be a wash across the plaza, but it won't be the kind that soaks your feet. It's very thin, right? It's only a couple millimeters. We're studying it now, five millimeters you want it to be, not more, so it doesn't wet your shoes, but it will create a ephemeral effect of having this cold wind We'll do this when it's 35 degrees, so it'll be refreshing wind that will give a moment of a, whew, of a refreshing wind. And if you're able to cool the whole sort of cradle of Notre Dame, that in turn will cool the rest of the city, correct? Because it is the center of the city and that coolness will radiate out. It will radiate out, but especially the fact that we thought from the beginning when we're doing the competition, if we can cool down and make the public spaces around as important symbolically as Notre Dame, it could also have an influence on how we design other public spaces. Because I think we have to rethink all of our public spaces in all of our cities urgently into an urban microclimate. And we can create microclimates by the use of plants, the use of the winds, by the study of the shade. So I think we have an urgent mission to rethink our cities as these urban uh, microclimates. So how did you get into landscape architecture? Did you always want to do this? Did you study this and start from the beginning? And then how did you pivot towards climate? I've always been interested in the maybe more philosophical idea of how we live on this planet. How do we live as humans? How do we live together with other living organisms, plants, animals? And that has always intrigued me. I didn't know I wanted to become a landscape architect, but I knew I wanted to work with this idea of inhabiting this earth. And so first I studied architecture, but I didn't want to do buildings, so I was more constrained on public space. Then I did a sort of a PhD on urbanism, and then I ended up in landscaping. And suddenly I was like, yes, this is what I was looking for. This is my field, using plants, using stones, using urban furniture to create spaces that allow people to live in a different way. That's really exactly what I want to do, and especially public space. The mission is really to make space for the public. And climate change has been there from the beginning, because I remember when I did it, a small courtyard in London, right in the center of London, that the client wanted to transform into a garden. I knew we had to rethink the city as a juxtaposition of microclimates because buildings change wind patterns, they change solar exposition, they change permeability. In the end, the city is an accumulation of microclimates. And for each microclimate, you have to find the corresponding natural situation, study that natural logic, and bring that into that artificial microclimate. And that's the way to rethink the city as an accumulation of, I would say, ecologies that produce microclimates. So this microclimatic approach has always been part of this way of looking at the city as an artificial climate that needs to be studied to bring nature back into it. And it's true, you can see that in Paris. I mean, it's like Rome, it has several hills. There's Montmartre, there's Montparnasse, the hill at Etoile and a couple others. And then there's the space out in the 16th that was originally much more forest and land that goes into the Bois de Boulogne. So that's got a completely different microclimate than, say, the Marais, which is the oldest part of the city and is very dense and has big buildings. And then there's other areas that have tiny little streets and tiny buildings versus where Baron Hausman put through the big boulevards and it's more spread out. So it is a collection of microclimates and where the pockets of parks are, the Tuileries and the Luxembourg Gardens, but then you go up towards the 9th and the 10th arrondissement and there's not a green space to be had. It's just urban, urban, urban. It's true. It's like a puzzle of different microclimates with Notre Dame in the center. Exactly. Epicenter. If you get Notre Dame right, then the rest will fall in line, in theory. Now, you've been working on these microclimates in very difficult areas for a while. And one of your largest projects was 
Luma Arles, which is an interdisciplinary creative campus in Provence. And you turned a former rail yard, an industrial rail yard, into this lush 27-acre park with hundreds of trees and a rain-fed pond. I mean, I saw the pictures before you got a hold of this place, and it was pretty barren. It was just like flat and dead, and it looked a little toxic dump-like from all those years of being a rail yard. And you've turned it into this Eden, this amazing Eden. So how did you go about that? And you've managed to do this in one of the hottest pockets of France. How did you tackle this project? How did you get the project? And was it his competition as well? The Luma Foundation director or owner, Maya Hoffman, contacted several landscape architects and me and had chosen to give me the assignment. And she told me, I want to make a lush park for the people of Arles and the people visiting the Luma Foundation. And I remember thinking like, here, really, on this barren concrete platform that was carved out of the bedrock by the SNCF engineers, the engineers of the French railroad company. And from the beginning, I thought, before we can make a park, we have to change the climate. It doesn't work on this climate. We studied the existing climate and we discovered it was officially a semi-desert climate. Definitely. Between the heat and the wind, because you have the Mistral wind blowing through there, it's dry and it's hot. And the wind would heat up because at the end you were standing in between the sun and this concrete platform that would heat up and radiate heat. So the perceived temperature, the temperature that you feel as a human body, is terrible, 45, 50 degrees. So hot. So what we did is we imagined what nature would have done over time. You mentioned the wind, the mistral wind coming from the Swiss Alps would over time bring sedimentation, would bring particles that would create a dune-like topography. Once you have topography, you have soil. Once you have soil, you have plants. And so we imagined that pioneer plants would grow in thin layers of soil. And the more we would have soil, the more we would have the ecological succession of the next type of plants. And we know that if you don't touch a site and you let nature do what it wants to do, in 400 years' time, you come to a climax. That's a theory. Climax is the climax trees that would be the end of the ecological cycle. And so what's interesting is that we used that ecological cycle to bring in 80,000 plants of 140 species. And if you walk through the park, 80,000 80, trees, 1,000 <laughs> shrubs, and then smaller plants planted one by one, 80,000 of them. And they create a climatic machine. They evaporate, they create shade, and they produce a microclimate. We lower the perceived temperature by 20 degrees from 50 to 30. Wow. So as a human body, the temperature is still higher. The temperature you feel is lower. 30 is still pretty hot. In Fahrenheit, that's somewhere in the 90s. It's still hot, but it's, it's not. It's still hot, but it's bearable. But it's not baking. You're not going to exactly. keel over in it. Last summer, there's plenty of people lying on the grass in the park. Young couples come with their kids. Well, this before was unthinkable. It was a complex project, and it was great to do it with the Luma Foundation, with Maya Hoffman and also with the artists that were involved. And we could really prove that we can make microclimates. You need plants, water, and soil. Plants, soil you can bring, water you have to find. It really convinced us in this approach that even there in Ireland, so much sun power. I mean, it's brutal in summer with the wind. I mean, it's one of the toughest regions of Europe. If you can make microclimates there with the help of plants and water and soil, you can do it anywhere. So that has really put us on the mission of transforming the city into a microclimate. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. If you're enjoying this episode, check out our chat with Dan Barber, the philosopher chef. 
and the author of The Third Plate, Field Notes on the Future of Food, published by Penguin. Chef Dan is rethinking cooking and eating in a more sustainable manner, and he explains it to us on this episode. To keep up with hopeful stories in the climate movement, sign up for the Green Dream newsletter at thegreendream.studio or on Substack. Now back to Belgian landscape architect Bas Smets, who is leading a team to turn the grounds of Notre Dame de Paris into a cooling microclimate. And then you've done this again in Brussels with a disused drill yard, smack in the center of the city and made a beautiful 30-acre park, the Tour and Taxus Park, where you planted thousands of pioneer trees. What are pioneer trees? Pioneer trees are the ones that are the first to come back. For example, after fire, you would see right. birches. So those are fast growing. They don't ask a lot. They have a very strong root system that can grow about anywhere. They would then die after 50, 80 years and their organic material would create the compost for the next succession. And so over years, for example, in that area in Brussels, we know that the climax would be beech and oak. These pioneer trees prepare the soil for these trees that are more noble and live longer. The Brussels project we started 15 years ago and was the first attempt at accelerating natural processes. So we would plant pioneer trees together with the next succession to create a logical acceleration of what nature would do. And so in a sense, Brussels was the first experiment that we then brought to a, a more complex and a more complete proposal for the project in Arles in the south of France. And you used the train track ballast for your underground reservoir, which I thought was genius, as opposed to just ignoring it and leaving it alone. You used this to your advantage. I had about 80 centimeters, is about three feet of ballast, so all these stones, and I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't really have the money to discharge it. Yeah, to dig it up and get it out of there. We were putting it in a bucket. I don't even remember when. And I was like, hmm, I saw all this interstitial space. I was like, bring me some water. We poured water in it, and we saw that we could have an enormous amount of water within the interstitial space of these stones. I thought, that's a perfect reservoir. So we changed the slopes of the site. We put all of that ballast underneath a lawn, and that holds now one million liter of water. So all the water from the adjacent buildings can be stored there, can then infiltrate to replenish the napfetic, the water table, or can evaporate, creating a cooler microclimate. So that was out of necessity, the first time that we thought about how can we keep water, how can we use what's there. And so in the end, we didn't take anything off the side, didn't bring anything on the side, but just remodeled the layers that constitute finally the soil. It sounds like you're doing then is rethinking the way we approach the construction of a piece of land. You know, before we would put in drains and try to run the water off. I was in Los Angeles during the epic rain bombs this winter. The water was just running down the hills and down the streets and into the drains and out into the sea. And it wasn't going into the earth. It was just whooshing away between the vast amounts of water, but also the structure of how we've always thought about using drainage to drain the water away from the houses and drain the water out into the ditches and into the streams and then send it off to the sea. But in fact, what we should be doing in the age of climate change is retaining the water in the soil. And so you're creating ways to do that, like this example with the ballast. Draining the water creates a double problem. You create flooding downhill and uphill. The water table gets lower, which means that even a 100-year-old tree suddenly doesn't have access to the water anymore. So what you need to do is keep the water where it falls as much as possible. And now in other projects in Antwerp, for example, we're rethinking the sidewalks as a reservoir for water. So by making a different type of foundation from the ballast in Brussels, 
we make foundations that can store water. So the idea is we store water where it falls as much as possible and we don't evacuate oh, anything. Interesting. No drainage needed. No, and also the mistake many cities do out of necessity, they mix the rainwater with the dirty water. There's no capacity anymore left in the sewage system. So the moment you keep all the rainwater separated from the sewage water, keep it on side, you suddenly have double the capacity in the old sewage systems. Now, what kind of trees are you planting in Notre Dame? What are the ones that are heat resistant and drought resistant and will live a long time? Because you've had to think when you plant something like this, you're not planting for next year or even in 10 years. You're planting for 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, right? We are studying. It's interesting. I was asked by Chaumont sur Loire to make a garden, you know, to have this festival of the gardens. And I've called my intervention La Forêt du Futur, the forest of the future. So we selected 27 trees that we think are more resistant to the climatic changes happening right now. So we'll plant them and use that as an experiment to see which ones adapt best. And out of these 27, we'll also make a selection for the trees that we'll plant in Paris. It can be indigenous trees. Some of them are resistant. What are the ones that are indigenous, the ones that we find in Paris? The maples are quite good. The maples. There's a number of oaks that are good as well. Quercus ceris. I think it's called in English the Turkish oak. There is, of course, the Micocoulier, which is a tree from the south of France in the Mediterranean. There's also some alder, Alnus pati, to give you the Latin name, the Sophora, which is more a tree from the east, the Stephanolobium. So there are a number of trees that we've already been using that we know now for sure that will be better resistant to all the changes coming. And the changes coming is the heat, but it's especially drought, especially drought resistance that we're looking for. And what about the trees that are signature to Paris, the marronnier, the chestnut trees and the plane trees, the ones that they cut in nice, clean squares in the park, which is so fun to watch when they do that. Yeah, but they're both suffering. Huh? Will they resist or will they wind up not making The question it? is what's making it or not, of course, because... <laughs> plane trees grow all across the south of France, yeah. too. They yeah. use them to line the roads for shade. So they do seem like they're resistant to drought and heat. Yes, but there is this disease. Yeah. So as long as they're not touched by the disease, it's fine. But there's also a disease for the marronniers. So I think we'll introduce new trees. So we make a bigger biodiversity to make the chances of survival bigger. But that will be key. We don't really know what's going to happen in 2050. So we need to experiment. I think we need to give ourselves the opportunity to experiment more since nobody is really sure what will happen. No. Exactly. And hopefully, you know, we can tame climate change as best as we can through things like planting and reconfiguring our landscaping so we retain the water. What are some of the things that that listeners can do just in their own homes and gardens to have a greener garden, a more eco-friendly garden? I would say if you have a lawn, don't cut at least one third of it. I finally convinced my parents to do it. (laughs) So it's harder in your own family. I think they stop cutting two thirds of it and wildflowers come back. In no time, you have, you have all the bees, all the butterflies coming back and it's just beautiful. And my dad told me, like, not only do I have less work, but I don't need to mow the lawn. It's looking more pretty. It's like, yes, we have to stop wanting to control everything. We have to just give back a third, two thirds, and you'll see it. It's wonderful. So sometimes not doing something is more helpful than doing it. But I think that our lawns, are a great potential for more biodiversity by just stopping to cut the lawn. And then what about something like composting or soil management, ground cover of course. for flower beds and things like that? Understanding that the leaves of the tree is the food of the tree. Instead of the nourishment. Yeah, instead of taking everything away, understanding how cycles work and how to respect those cycles within the context of a garden or a park. Leave the leaves. Leave the leaves. Leave the leaves. Don't move. <laughs> now, also at Notre Dame, part of the redesign is also thinking about tourism. 
Paris has enormous amounts of tourists. It's kind of mind-boggling. And now that we didn't have them for two or three years during COVID to have them all back again is really, you see the difference. And I know just in the time that I've lived here, the number of tourists has gone up by about 20%. And I don't know if you know the figures of how it's supposed to keep growing, but you're trying to make this more manageable. When I first moved to Paris, when you went past Notre Dame, if you were walking somewhere, you could just pop into Notre Dame and sort of say, hey, how's it going in here? And take a look at the windows, maybe say a little prayer, maybe light a candle, you know, take a little walk around and look at the art and then carry on with your day. But for the last 20 years or so, that's absolutely been impossible because of security, especially post 9-11. And the lines are so long. And so Parisians don't get to go to Notre Dame unless we go to mass. That's it. If you want to see Notre Dame, you got to go to Mass. And then you don't get to really visit because you're at Mass. So (laughs) you're rethinking this to make it more manageable and make it more visitable, I guess, more easy to visit. What are you doing in the plan to accommodate tourism? So we're thinking of the different lines for the queues, the line for individual visitors, the line for the groups, or the lines for the people that want to see the towers. So we're really spatially spreading out those queues. So everyone's not going in through the same door. So they're not <laughs> all waiting in one single line. There's many lines and they're a bit spread. At the same time, we're working with the cathedral to see which doors they can use, which is the entrance, which is the exit. That's, of course, their decision that we accommodate. And then we're also inviting visitors to do the whole tour of Notre Dame. So there's not everybody waiting in line to just go inside, but spreading, enlarging the experience, which will help de-densify the queues. For example, in the back, there's a lovely little fenced-in rose garden, and you're getting rid of the fencing and making it a piece of the whole Notre Dame experience as opposed to compartmentalizing. There's a very important axis. It's the axis of the church itself that goes from the west to the east, from the mundane world, the celestial world of the east of the rising sun, but also to the source of the Seine. And that axis is so important that the water coming from the east, the sun going up in the east, that we find again that relationship between the backside of the church, the abscess and the sand. And that was a very important element for us. And all those fences are not allowing that. So suddenly you will be able to see at the same time the sand and the abscess of the church, which I think will be a discovery for many people, not only tourists, but also for the Parisians. And also there won't be as much traffic back there. There's a street that just cuts straight across the island. It's not super busy, but it's busy nevertheless. Yeah, the Rue de la Cité will be kept, but around the cathedral itself, everything will be pedestrian-friendly. There will still be some taxis and buses and residents, but the whole traffic will be much lower down. Which will also lower the carbon footprint around the island, the entire island and Notre Dame. Probably that's better for the plants and better for the people. Absolutely. And also for the cathedral as well. Remember, it was black in the 80s. I remember. I remember when they were cleaning it. And that's when you would say, if that's what it's doing to the cathedral, what's the air doing to my lungs? My gosh. So this all sounds very promising and very exciting. What is the timeline for Notre Dame now? When will we start getting to experience it beyond looking at it from a platform? The cathedral will reopen at the end of 2024, and we will start working on the site on 2025. Because right now, it's a construction site for the renovation of the cathedral, so we couldn't even start if we wanted to. Also, we need those two years to finish all our studies. We will start constructing it beginning 2025 for three years. So until the end of 2027. Fantastic. Will there be anything open or available to see for the Olympics? Not sure. Not? That was the initial Not idea, sure. maybe a partial opening. But from our point, there will be nothing to see because we haven't started yet. The cathedral, that I cannot say with certainty. 
And then we'll be able to enjoy the inside and the outside of the cathedral in a new 21st century way. In a refreshing way. In a refreshing way in the age of climate change. Starting at the end of 2027, the whole package. Well, this is wonderful. Thank you so much, Beth Smets, for speaking with us today on The Green Dream. You have definitely given us a lot of hope. I remember the day coming off the train. I was arriving in Gare de Lyon, getting off the train and smelling the smoke and hearing the sirens and saying, my gosh. The Notre Dame being in the center of the city, it did feel like the whole city was on fire. It was an enormous and heartbreaking experience. But now there's hope and we're turning this tragedy into something wonderful with your help. Yes, and that's the power of Notre Dame. That's the power of Notre Dame. It keeps on living. We have to rebuild it, keep on working on its its presence, on its image, on what it means for so many people. Evolution. Perfect. And we'll look forward to seeing you and Notre Dame again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for listening to The Green Dream. We'll be back in two weeks with Val Miftikoff, founder and CEO of Zero Avia, a tech startup that has developed zero emission aviation with hydroelectric propulsion. He'll explain it to us. I hope you'll join us. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, and at select stores. The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas. From Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert and mix and master by Kayla Elrod. Music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can follow me on Instagram and on Twitter, where my handle for both is at Dana Thomas Paris. And you can sign up for the Green Dream newsletter at our website, thegreendream.studio. Thank you for listening.